So we're on question three of the Westminster Larger Catechism, and we're going at a slow pace, um, trying to really unpack all that's in these. These answers are meant to be more than just the answer. Really what you can think of every answer in this catechism is, is like a heading in a systematic theology. And so if you know the basic content of these answers, you know basically all the points you need to cover um, if you're thinking systematically through the different uh, doctrines and topics God has given us. So uh, question three asks this, what is the word of God? What is the word of God? And the answer is the holy scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the word of God, the only rule of faith and practice. Uh, let's ask God's blessing as we look to these doctrines. Heavenly Father, would you help us, give us understanding and enlightenment in our minds that we might know the hope you've called us to and that we might trust your word more and see you in it more clearly. And we pray all this for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So the first thing I want to point out is if we notice the order that these questions came in. Last week we were looking at the plain proofs of the existence of God that's evident to everyone. And notice that the order goes from the existence of God to the word of God and not the other way around. A lot of people like to start with scripture and say we will first prove God from scripture. Um, but that's not the apologetic method that these framers use. They start with what is plain, what is generally known, before they go to the specific. It's this thought of, okay, you have a sense of there's got to be some divine being, some all-powerful intelligence. We would assume that this character then would be able to communicate with us. Where has God communicated? Scripture reveals itself as God's communication. Whereas if you start with scripture, you, you start with the special revelation and you try to go to general revelation from that, it doesn't make as much sense to people. Uh, maybe this example might make sense. Um, uh, President Barack Obama came up with a biography recently, very in-depth about his own life. And if you wanted to read that, you would do so because you were interested in what you already knew, right? You probably know some general things, what you've seen and heard, but you would then want to say, okay, well, what are more details? And you would look to that book then to maybe clarify and enlighten some of the things you only knew generally. But if someone said, no, you can't really know anything about the president generally until you've read the specifics. And then from there, go to the person. That just doesn't make sense logically. So we start with what people generally can see in this world and then say, doesn't scripture answer these longings? Doesn't scripture reveal itself as a divine communication, recognizing that we already sense that there is a divine being? Um, it's evident God exists. And so it's, it's this thought of, see if this doesn't accord with the deepest longings of your soul. Okay, so that's just a comment on the order. And so this says, we're looking at what is the word of God? And because we're so accustomed to using this language, we jump so quickly to, oh, of course, the Bible. But let's just think, the fact that this is the word of God, we're talking about divine communication, we're talking about that all-powerful intelligence we looked at last week actually communicating with humanity in a way we can understand. That's really wild. And so this then is what the world needs. The world needs the word from the creator. If we looked at question one, the chief end of man is living according to our design. We need to look to our designer to see how we ought to live because he's the one that would know better than us how we will best find meaning and purpose in our human lives. 
And so there's actually two doctrines that are encapsulated in this answer. The doctrine of the inspiration of scripture and the doctrine of the authority of scripture. And we might just get through the first one. So even though it seems like a short question, uh, there's a lot packed in it. Okay, so let's look at the doctrine of inspiration. Uh, the holy scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the word of God. Okay, we're talking about the word of God that we're thinking of is the holy scriptures of the Old and New Testament. And consider, first of all, the form of this communication. The scriptures are a written document. And if we compare that with other religions, there's many ways that people think that they hear God speak to them, whatever God they believe in. Uh, some people look towards a sort of um, communication from God that's intrinsic to this world, right? Think of astrology. They're looking to the stars to declare some word from God. Or if people are doing di divination, looking at tea leaves, they're, they're seeking to divine some sort of word from the creator, from the universe. Okay, so there's ways people look to creation. People look to, um, ancient peoples looked to weather responses. They said, oh, if there was like, uh, rain came here, that's probably the God's blessing, and we'll figure out what they want us to do based on whether good or bad things happen. That's how a lot of people historically have looked at communi divine communication. And we see this as part of general revelation, but not the specific clear communication that we need. And then secondly, people have looked at historically um, personal communication, whether that's through prophets who are supposed to be spokespeople for God or through gods considered to become human, to speak. And we see this in a lot of different religions. And Christianity is based on this personal communication. Prophets in the Old Testament who spoke from God, but especially God incarnate in Christ, who's delivered us a personal word from God, God in human form. And um, over time, this word of God has, in a sense, become crystallized. In a sense, the word of God was present and active in the Old Testament. There was new revelation coming. In Christ, it, it had a crescendo, but it's been crystallized into this book. All those various communications, some were retained, some were kept, and they've come to us in this form. Um, it's almost as if, you know how you would hear in school how the Native Americans, when they would kill a buffalo, they would use every part of the buffalo, they would eat the meat, they would burn the fat, and then they would use the skins for their huts and the bones for tools. And it's almost as if at that time, um, some elements of God's revelation were like that fat and meat, the people had it. Jesus said tons of things that aren't in the Bible, right? for the people at that time. But what God has left to us is a permanent, enduring, necessary thing. It's like that shelter we live in, the tools that we use. And this is what we have now, a crystallized form of the word of God. And consider how significant it is just the fact that it's a book, right? If we didn't have a book, but it was just this general um, revelation, uh, thoughts in our minds, or tea leaves, we would have no objective standard to say, I'm right and you're wrong, or vice versa. It would be so ethereal, and it would be each one then doing what's right in his own eyes. Or people that said they were prophets to declare the word of the Lord now, it would be difficult for us to know if they're just making it up, or if it is a true divine word. And that's part of the benefit of the Bible, is that you can check it. It's um, solid, it's objective, it's external to us. 
and becomes um, a standard and basis by which we can trust God's communication to his creation. Um, And why would God give us a Bible that also, this is actually really weird when you think about it. Why did God give us a Bible that was written by people over 1,500 years, 40 different authors, right? If we, if I was doing it, I would have made the whole Bible like the Ten Commandments, right? Just boom, pop it out of heaven. It's perfect. You don't have to worry about anything. And the question is like, why didn't God do it that way? Well, we can't fully know the mind of God, but perhaps it was to keep us from idolatry. Something like that could easily have been held on to as an idol. If we had had a tablet that was the whole Bible, perhaps we would have not thought it right to ever translate it or copy it. It could only be that one central divine stone. Um, That's actually a little bit like how Muslims think of the Quran, that it's only true in the original Arabic. Um, It's not really right to translate it. it. It doesn't have the same power. So maybe those are some reasons why God allowed the Bible to develop in human history, be the product of all these um, different historical uh, moments, but yet still being an outside objective standard. Um, We can think of these scriptures developed. It says Old and New Testament. Uh, That's coming from the idea of testament there is the idea of a will and testament. And Hebrews talks about... um, Christ's Testament, the Old Testament. And um, I don't want to jump into too much of an aside here, but it's, it's, it's related to the Hebrew word for covenant. And one of my professors at school says, if I could cut out one page of the Bible, it would be the page that says New Testament. Uh, because even just this bifurcated way of thinking, it's, we have the Old Testament and the New Testament that's actually not a super helpful way to think about it. It really divides the book unhelpfully. Because when you think about it, Christ is actually ministering in an old covenant era, right? He hadn't effectualized it yet. And so even though that's the way it's conventionally come down to us, not a super helpful way to actually think of the Bible. The Bible moves through various different periods of history. Uh, The period from Abraham to Moses is very different than David to Jesus. Um, And to just split it into two um, at that point is a little bit arbitrary. Okay, but I don't want to spend too much time on that. Okay, now we're going to come to some of the meat of this. Okay, the question is, In what way are the scriptures, right? The scriptures are the actual book, those scrolls, the writings. In what way are the scriptures, the word of God, the divine communication, okay? Um, We we could distinguish those. Uh, Because, and this idea of the word of God comes from 2 Timothy 3.16, where we're told, famously, that all scriptures God breathed, okay? Or inspired by God. That's actually talking about it coming from his mouth, right? Divine communication, And uh, we can distinguish between four different ways people today say the relationship exists between the scriptures and the word of God. Okay, so a liberal view, an actually liberal view, would say that the scriptures are not the word of God, but they are words about God. It was people that had experience of God talking about their experience. So we read David saying like, yeah, he, he had some experiences with God. Here's what he thinks about it. Okay, words about God. Uh, the post-liberal view, or what used to be called the neo-orthodox view, which you don't really need to remember these terms, but they say that the scriptures are not the word of God, but that they become the word of God in our use. So they don't see inspiration at the start, like God inspires the prophet to write, 
but they say the prophet wrote, and then as it goes from the Bible to us, that's where the inspiration takes place. So the inspiring power is happening as we read the word of God. Okay, that's what uh, the neo-Orthodox think. That the word of God is the means by which we encounter the true word of God, which is more of a spiritual experience. Um, Then we could look at more of, don't have an official name for this, but the neo-evangelical view, which would say that the the scriptures contain the word of God. So maybe um, some parts of the Bible we kind of ignore. That probably wasn't right. Maybe Paul was wrong about a few things, but either they might say the thoughts in scripture are inspired or parts of the Bible are inspired, right? You remember famously Thomas Jefferson tried to cut out the parts of the Bible that he thought were not uh, true, not inspired, but some of it was, some of it wasn't. Also wrong. But then the true Orthodox view is that the scripture is the word of God. You might have heard of the phrase uh, plenary verbal inspiration, which is just an overly fancy way of saying plenary, which means all the Bible, verbal, the words of the Bible, is the word of God. So, in short, every word of scripture is God's divine communication to us. That's the view of plenary, full, verbal words inspiration. That is, God's inspiration is at the beginning of that chain, right in the very writing, not at the end of the chain, not somewhere else. Okay, um, any, any comments or questions so far? Mm-hmm. So, the people who say, you know, God spoke to me and told me to do this, um, like, where would you put them in the Word of God categories? Mm-hmm. Obviously, today, God doesn't speak like He spoke to the prophets in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. It means we have His full revealed Word in the Bible, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think. Um, it would be inappropriate to apply the word inspiration to that. If someone did, they're basically claiming to be a prophet, uh, which seems to be quite dangerous. But I think you could use the idea of, say, illumination there, right? So we believe that as we read the word of God, the Holy Spirit comes alongside the word and helps apply it to our life, open our minds and hearts to receive it. And I think sometimes God uh, does that in a sense, not when we're just directly reading the scripture, but you might have a spirit illuminated thought that would be connected to scripture, but not necessarily at the same time as reading it. So I think there there is a way that it can be right that we can, um, for lack of a better term, hear from God as the spirit just illuminates um, scriptural concepts to us. But this idea of hearing God actual speak Um, In the way that saying, I am bringing the word of the Lord is definitely um, no no longer the way God works now that we have the word. So yeah, this idea of inspiration, um, I don't know if it would actually fit one of these views per se. I think that's almost like a different idea, but definitely something uh, we encounter, especially dealing in, uh, say, the Pentecostal and charismatic worlds. And actually, it filters down a lot. Those sort of ideas of God kind of whispering in your ear, telling you what to do, um, are actually pretty prevalent. So, but yeah, thanks for that. Okay, views of inspiration. But here's something I think is, we I think will all agree the Bible's fully inspired. Here's a, uh, an idea that I think is more important for us to grasp. And that is this idea of what is the relationship between the divine author of scripture and the human authors of scripture? 
This is a lot more tricky to figure out. So when we're referring to the Bible as the Word of God, that's a reference to its divine author. When we're referring to it as the scriptures, we can think of that as a reference to the human author. So when we're connecting these, that the scriptures, this human document, is the Word of God, a divine document, how does that work together? And I want to point out three different views of divine and human authorship interacting that I think will help us. Because it's really a balance, right? It's like a teeter-totter. We have the divine and human, and they have to stay in balance. And if they don't, it leads us into error. Okay, so for the first probably 1,500 years of church history, those scales were tipped heavily in favor of the divine. That you can really just think of scripture as God's book. And this comes what people have called either the mechanic view of scripture or the dictation view of scripture, that God basically bypassed the human authors and used them like stencils or like secretaries to just input what God was thinking kind of apart from them. And this mechanic view I've illustrated with a flat line. What this view does is when you only really focus on that God is the author of scripture is one book, it ends up flattening the distinctions and peculiarities of different parts of the Bible into one thing. And what happens is you stop looking at the history of scripture and you just look for the diverse ideas to build into a coherent system. And that's where developed in the Middle Ages, very intense scholastic theology, where the Bible was just picked apart for little proof texts to build very intricate systems. And there is some good in that, but ignoring these human authors, it leads to flattening scripture into a line. Everything basically says the same thing, and you're tracing it all to the mind of God. And if you don't have to figure out what the mind of the human writer was, only the divine mind, we can only really guess at that. And so what that lead led to was a lot of allegorizing, coming up with very fanciful interpretations that were not very connected to the text, because if it's only the mind of God, you can kind of go anywhere. And that was kind of the nature of viewing scripture uh, for the first 1500 years of church history. They viewed it very mechanically. And again, God could have given us the Bible like an encyclopedia. God could have given us a Bible that was doctrine of God, doctrine of man. Here's how you live here, 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 like a textbook, which I think I would have really liked, but he didn't. God gave us a lot of narrative and history, and it's not written that way. And so to flatten it that way is inappropriate. Um, God used human writers, right? He didn't have to, but he chose to. And therefore, he used them as they are, as humans. Okay, that's the mechanic view. Uh, then, once you come past the 1500s into the Enlightenment, uh, the scales tip the other way, from the divine all the way to the human, where the divine is almost erased. And I call this the Titanic view, because it, it views the parts of Scripture almost like separate icebergs that there's no real overarching unity, but the book of Philippians is kind of floating out here. And so we can maybe understand Philippians, but you wouldn't connect Philippians to Deuteronomy. That doesn't make sense. They're totally different. They're floating in their own places. Maybe they were connected to some central glacier at some point, but who could really know? 
And so we can't even think of Scripture as giving us a coherent theology. Uh, the, the, the writers of the Pentateuch had their own theology. The writers of Chronicles probably had their own goals and different theology and different ideas of God's nature. And then the New Testament authors came in and totally changed it because they're only looking at separate little icebergs, every part of Scripture, okay? So if this mechanic view is overly leveling it, only seeing unity without diversity, the modern view began to only see diversity without unity. And what happens then also is you don't really believe prophecy anymore, because how could those prophets have known what was going to happen in the New Testament? Those are totally disjunct ways. And I call it the Titanic view because it crashes, and it doesn't work, and it doesn't give us truth. It doesn't give us access to the Word of God. Um, it's a view ultimately doomed to failure. But the Orthodox view, what we see in the connection between the Word of God and the Holy Scriptures is the organic view of God and the human authors work together in concert organically. And we see the unity and diversity of Scripture like a mountain range. Where, yes, in a mountain range, you can distinguish different peaks. You can go and explore the book of Philippians as Philippians. It has its own shape. It has its own nature. But the line of the landscape, it never stops. It's connected to every other peak in that range. And so we can look at Scripture as Wow, there's a unity in the range of its different writers and topics, but there's also diversity because the line is God's mind through it, but the individual peaks are like the individual author's mind. And so we can look at it through both lenses. There's essential unity, but also unique distinction. And we need to get these scales balanced. And an important verse for this is 2 Peter 1, 20 to 21, which says this. Above all, you do well if you recognize this, that no prophecy of Scripture ever comes about by the prophet's own imagination, for no prophecy of Scripture was ever born by human impulse. Rather, men carried along by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So it's important for us to recognize that the men are speaking. It doesn't say the men are not speaking but they are being carried along or born by the Holy Spirit in their speaking. There's a concurrence. I, I like to think of, say, um, if you were kayaking downstream in the river, the river's carrying you, but you're also paddling. And so both are true at the same time. God is writing scripture as humans are writing scripture. He's not bypassing the, the human side of things. And um, one one commentator points out of this verse that the, it's saying that the prophets didn't invent their own prophecies. Peter's point is the same as found elsewhere in the New Testament, that human prophets didn't originate the message, but they did convey it using their own personalities in the process. And so here might be another way to think of scripture. Uh, if you had a college professor who was going to write a large book on the topics he writes, and uh, let's just ignore the issue of ghostwriting. But let's say he gets his grad students, basically, to help him work on this book and gives each grad student um, a chapter to work on. Okay, so this is all coming from him. His students submit to him the chapters as, say, the general editor, because his name's going to be on this. And he looks at it and says, there's no changes I need to make. This perfectly reflects what I believe and what I have taught these students over the years. 
And therefore, when it's published in his name, it's at the same time fully showing what his students wrote and their thoughts, but it's also accurately conveying the mind of the professor. And I think that's a good way to think of scripture, that as people that heard from God and studied God, the prophets, the apostles, they wrote scripture that was perfectly in accord with what God wanted to say. And perhaps it's sometimes God edited it, but I don't think so. I think God used exactly what they had written and it perfectly reflected his mind. I don't think they were writing and God was like controlling the pen. It's like, ah, don't say that, say this. Um, they were, in a sense, the, the mind of God was coming through and God used every providential circumstance in their life, their upbringing, their learning, their thoughts, their circumstances to lead to the part where they are writing exactly what he wanted to communicate to us. The divine word and the human scriptures are one and the same uh, because God's superintendence guaranteed that scripture would be the revelation of his mind. Um, any, any questions on this relationship between divine and human authorship before we look at some implications of this? Yes. Are we sure? Yeah. I believe so. Um, yeah, I think the the marks of canonicity are passed between. Um, so the in accepting a book to the Bible, there was usually three marks that it had to have. It had to have the New Testament, particularly, because we know Jesus accepted the whole Old Testament. For a book to be in scripture, it had to bear the marks of apostolic origin. It had to bear the marks of historical acceptance in the church. And it had to bear um, the marks of just the, the imprint of the divine, the Holy Spirit speaking through it. And um, John Piper thinks that if we found, say, the letter Paul wrote to the Laodiceans, he thinks if we found that we should include it in scripture, though he doesn't think we'll find it. But the problem there is that that would miss, even if it could be proved to be apostolic, it would miss that mark of historical continuity with the church. And I, that's why I think nothing can be added to scripture because that mark that's been determined um, hasn't continued. Because I think the problem would then be um, God would then have not equipped the church through all ages with whatever this was. And I don't think we have any scriptural precedent to say that God is going to, in a sense, limit the church for the first 2,000 years only to add some new revelation later. I think that's a dangerous way to think about it. So I don't know if that's like a 100% assuage all your doubts answer, but <laughs> that's what my course has taught me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the Bible is done being written, but I think there... As I read, like, the Old Testament, we think, um, you know, Aaron collected all the gold jewelry and melted it down to worship a golden calf. So the people worship a calf. When, when you read that, at least when I read it, I go, how could these people be so stupid? But then, as I watch current events unfold and how, you know, there's a push to get rid of a plastic toy because it's not gender... Um, friendly or whatever, whatever definition you want to put on it, and all the things in the last short term that, that have come get, been called into question, I think to myself, you know, Solomon is right. There is nothing new under the sun. This, this, this insanity that we're experiencing now is not much different 
in 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 dynamic than the stupid things they did in in scripture. And I joke with people. I said, as these different topics come up, you know, if the Bible were being written today, the story would be in it. Um, I think it's I think it's interesting that uh, that. The, there's so many things in history that uh-huh. that uh, really are, are chaotic, and it doesn't matter if it was 4,500 years ago. Uh-huh. Yeah, that reminds me of 1 Corinthians 10 says that the, the things that happened in the Old Testament happened to the Israelites as examples for us that we wouldn't follow sin after they did. And the sins that people are prone to are the same as they've always been. People run headlong to their own destruction, just as they always have. And we don't need that many more examples or stories of scripture because all the basic sins of human nature are already covered in there, right? Okay, and so uh, let's look at an implication. If scripture is the product of the divine and human mind, how should we interpret it? This is a question I have been wrestling with for the last couple of years because there's actually a lot of different views here. But anyways, I found in Richard Pratt, um, I really like the way he outlines this, and this was very helpful to me. If we are going to look at scripture as the work of two authors, this is the interpretation pyramid. I came up with the pyramid part, so I want to get some credit for that. <laughs> the, the, the reverse pyramid. And we want to look at scripture at three levels. Uh, we want to see how um, an explanation of a text, the elaboration, and the application. These are three elements, and each higher level grows out of the lower. So when we come to scripture, the first thing we have to do is give credence to the human author. Okay, that's this bottom one. We want to explain it and know the meaning. And the single original meaning is what we're after. And you determine the meaning of a text the way you study any written text. You look at the historical context it's written in. You look at the grammar and the words that are used. And you look at the type of literature it is. Is this poetry? Is this prose? Is this narrative? And you look at all these texts in context. And when really studying this, you're looking at why did the original author say this to that original audience? That gives you the original meaning. And the original meaning is the constraining force on anything else that happens. And if something is not tied to that original meaning, it can't mean what it can't mean. And this is something that especially John Calvin was huge on. We need to have everything tied to this original intent. And people do focus on this these days, but the problem often is that they stop there. So in preaching and study, it's said, hey, we don't want to import our own meanings to scripture, so let's just find what that original author meant to the original audience and explain it. And preaching becomes more just like a lecture, more just a teaching of a historical human text, which is good. That gets it right, but we can't stop there. We have to give credence to the divine mind in scripture. Um, This part is usually called historical grammatical interpretation. Not Not the smoothest term, I know. But historical, take account of the history. Grammatical, take account of the grammar. Historical grammatical interpretation. That's level one interpretation, explaining a text. But we need level two, which I'll call theological interpretation. That is, we need to take account of the divine mind in scripture. What does this mean? 
Because scripture is the product of one divine author, that means we will see an overarching unity to scripture and that scripture will obey the law of non-contradiction. Scripture will not contradict itself. Its teaching will be unified because God is the author. If we're looking at multiple works um, in a series by the same author, you expect to see continuity because of the author, right? And because of that, you can bring later things you've learned to help unfold and elucidate things you see before, right? So think of The Hobbit. In The Hobbit, the ring is just a nice invisibility power, right? We don't know much about it other than Bilbo uses it to turn invisible and it seems good. But then if you've read or seen Lord of the Rings, we find out, oh, this ring had a history of how it was created. It has a destiny, how it's going to work over here, and it can have dire consequences. And knowing that the author wrote other things, the next time you come to read The Hobbit, you're like, oh, wow, like this is that ring. Man, Bilbo's playing with fire here. This is dangerous. He needs to be careful. Because the one mind of the author, even though they're totally different books, helps us see more. It unfolds that idea of the ring, which is a lot more in it than what we would see from just reading The Hobbit. Does that make sense? If you just studied The Hobbit, you would think one thing about the ring, but you would elaborate it. You could get a lot more out of it by taking into account everything that Tolkien wrote about the ring. So we would expect to see these sites of connections. We would see foreshadowing. We would see um, analogies and allusions um, when we look at the theological for scripture. So Richard Pratt calls this biblical elaborations. How are the parts of scripture elaborated in other parts? And there's two main ways to figure this out, okay? This actually isn't as tricky as you would think. There's the use of what we call biblical theology and the use of systematic theology. Two different ways to look at a text. When we're using the tool of biblical theology, we're looking at themes that pop up in a text. So how does this theme follow throughout all scripture? So if I'm preaching about Solomon in the temple, I'm like, what is this theme of temple? And I go back and see the Garden of Eden is like a temple. And in Revelation, there's a temple coming down. Uh, Jesus is the temple of God. The church is the temple. There's a lot more to this idea of temple than just what I'm reading in the life of Solomon. And as I trace out that theme, that really opens up the text of Solomon to remind me of what just the presence of God among his people means. Looking at it historically, how it connects to creation, fall, redemption, uh, the restoration of all things, it opens up, it opens up, it blooms from this original meaning. It gives us more. Though it's still tied to it, it can never go against it, but it opens up from it. Same way with systematic theology. Systematic theology is not tracing themes historically, but looking at principles. So um, you, we would say, oh, what is this text telling me about repentance? Oh, here's another text about repentance. Here's another one about repentance. If I harmonize them, what do I learn about repentance? This is what we do when we go on Bible Gateway and we are like, I want to know what the Bible says about generosity. And you word search generosity and say, oh, it talks about it here, here, and here, and here. You're building a system. You're answering a question, what does the Bible say about generosity? And the text you're looking at in particular can inform that and open up and be part of a greater whole of understanding when you look at it systematically. And so then, 
When we come to the top, to application, to us, right? This is where we want to get to. How does scripture affect me? The way we get there is through this central level. We get to us through the point of contact of the principles and examples in the text and the themes in the text. Okay, this is how we connect to scripture. And we, it's, it's helpful to think of it this way. And so here is a, um, just an, a quick example of this. In the life of Manasseh, the book of Kings doesn't tell us about his repentance, whereas the book of Chronicles does. Historically, we want to see why was this written? Well, Kings was written to people in exile. They were in a hopeless estate, and the book of Kings was written to show them how did you come into exile? His point was just that Manasseh was super wicked, and because of him, you're in exile. His repentance wasn't meaningful to him. Whereas the writer of Chronicles is writing to a people who've had hope restored, and he wants to remind them of the hope that Manasseh's repentance means for them. And so if we're looking at this story, we can look at the themes of kingship. You could say, hey, there's a king here, and these kings keep failing. Oh, that means we should probably hope for the, for the king who never fails, the Lord Jesus Christ, and when the king will come again to rule. We need that because kings always fail. Or you can look at principles, like I said, that principle of repentance. And you would say, wow, God forgave this most wicked of basically all sinners in scripture. Surely then God can forgive me. And both these things come to us then. When I try to rule my life as a king, I fail. I need Christ to rule in my heart. Though I'm not as wicked as Manasseh, I still fall into idolatry. I should repent like Manasseh repented. And so we connect the original meaning to us through the themes and the principles found in the text. And I wish I could explain this a little bit more, but we are quickly running out of time. And here's how Pratt summarizes. The original meaning provides an infallible framework, a foundation for our understanding. But to gain awareness of scripture's full value, we also have to find guidance in biblical elaborations and make many legitimate applications to our world today. And if this maybe seems too fancy or complicated to you, um, just in closing, I will pose, here are two sets of questions to ask yourself when you read a text of scripture, okay? If you ask yourselves these questions, you will lead yourself on the right path. The first is the question of themes. Just ask yourself, how is this part of the Bible connected to creation, to the fall, to Christ's work of redemption, and to Christ's coming again, the new heavens and new earth. Is there anything in this text that speaks to me about the goodness of creation, the badness of the fall, the joy of Christ's salvation, or the hope of Christ's return? Think about it on the, that's the history level, the horizontal. Ask yourself those sorts of questions. And then secondly, ask your questions about principles. Namely, what does this text say about God, God's character, God's promises, and what does this text say about humanity? Man's sin, man's nature. And then what does it say about how we should respond? My duties. What should I do? What are the commands here? So think of that as the vertical line. God to me, to my life living. And if you think of scripture as how does this connect to the history of what God's doing in this world? And what does this tell me about God, myself, and how I should live? you'll be on your way to being able to connect scripture in its original meaning to your life now. 
Um, I'll, I'll take one, one question if someone's got one before we close. So I guess all that to say, let's use scripture. Let's enjoy it. It is God's divine communication to us. And therefore, we should rejoice to get to open it up and see the face of the creator of the world literally speaking to us. Uh, it's a really amazing blessing that God has given us this book. And in a time period of history where there's such widespread literacy, Bibles in abundance, uh, we have no excuse. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you especially for the word of Christ, that gospel hope, that message of our salvation, that though this world was good and it's gone so wrong, Christ came to restore us to the Father, to adopt us into the family of God, and to provide for us an eternal hope. Lord, would we look to find the encouragement of your word of truth um, every day of our lives and just rejoice that you've been so good to lead us in this way. We ask your blessing on our time of worship now uh, for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.